Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives on urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Rohan Amin, and we're so excited to welcome Dr. Mark Echo to the show. Dr. Echo is a serial entrepreneur, fashion designer, angel investor, and now an advocate for education reform and chair of Culture Council at the Emerson Collective, a nonprofit dedicated to creating a more equitable America. Dr. Echo's first venture came in 1993 when he left pharmacy school to start his own streetwear fashion company, Echo Unlimited, inspired by the aesthetic and culture of the emerging hip-hop scene. From airbrushing t-shirts in his parents' garage at age 13 to creating a fashion brand with over a billion dollars in revenue in 27 countries, Dr. Echo's journey is a quintessential example of the American dream. He then went on to found Complex, a media platform dedicated to covering the most popular trends in style, sneakers, music, and sports and youth culture. Complex is now one of the most influential and consumed media platforms in the world, and its effect on shaping how we appreciate and understand popular culture cannot be overstated. Welcome, Dr. Echo. It's truly a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. Oh, my goodness. It's my uh, pleasure to be here with you. Uh, thank you, so Rohan. You as well. Um, so if it's okay with you, I'd love to get started on from the sure. beginning. Uh, we could yeah. start with your background. Um, so you often discuss how growing up in a diverse community in Lakewood, New Jersey, gave you kind of this invaluable perspective on culture that really drove your artistic and creative vision as you began to commercialize your work. With hip hop being so closely associated with this identity, that makes a lot of sense to me. But I'd love to hear a bit more about the kind of intangible benefits of this diversity of thought and experience. And how did your upbringing inform your business decisions and the way you manage your company while simultaneously fostering American culture in a truly unique way? Oh, wow. I think, um, you know, that's one of the dimensions of my story that is um, sort of some, you know, by the grace of uh, God or mathematical odds that I would be that kid in this at that time in culture in that place, Lakewood where there was already, um, it's already Lakewood, New Jersey is already a very diverse and eclectic place. Um, and then, you know, in the eighties when hip hop was this rising counterculture phenomenon to be adjacent to that in my adolescent years, when you're sort of finding your identity, right. Um, I think that shaped me in very powerful, um, ways. And uh, um, I think the main sort of uh, um, insight um, was how taken I was uh, uh, at a young age to really to black music and, and you know, to hip hop. Uh, uh, and I, I say it explicitly black music because hip hop was kind of a gateway to discover all these other rich genres of 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 black music, be it jazz that was sampled or soul or funk music. And you'd look inside the liner notes of um, an album or a cassette uh, and you'd, you know, I'd obsess on the details of, of where did that sound come from? And that was kind of the rabbit hole into learning so much uh, insight around uh, the, the power of um, really the last century of, of, of contemporary music and how it was shaping, you know, uh, the civil rights movement and a lot of our politics. And, you know, that was baked deep in the batter. Right. Um, but it was there. And um, there were uh, in the eighties, in the late eighties, rap groups like uh, public enemy, um, the jungle brothers, um, they were more their music was more Afrocentric and it was more explicit about um, some of the sort of justice orientation or uh, KRS-One, for instance, from Boogie Down Productions, you know, KRS-One, the, the acronymical name of knowledge reigns supreme over nearly everyone. Right. Like KRS-One was all about sort of self-knowledge. Uh, um, and would in his lyrics explicitly give um, make historical references to 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 sort of footnotes, and you you go down a rabbit hole <laughs> discovering what that was all about. Um, so I think that shaped my that was like a my first remote learning 
experience, you know, <laughs> distance learning experience was sort of my relationship with that music. Um, and then, of course, there was this whole identity that existed with it. There was this aesthetic quality of uh, hip hop that just as a young person, you know, as a teenager, it was what was influencing counterculture, right? Absolutely. So, uh, um, the way people dressed, the way uh, um, they styled themselves, their, the, the accessories they wore, be their sneakers, their hats, their shoelaces, whatever, the jewelry, um, the outerwear. So as you're kind of coming into your adolescent self, this was the, in my community, the dominant sort of stream. Okay. So I, I moved, I, 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 I was, was drawn to that. And I was really drawn to the passion of my peers and my friends. I, I didn't, I did, I didn't see it in this explicit way. In this sort of, uh, I understand that this this racial, social dimension, but um, not as explicit as I do now at forty nine. You know, I couldn't articulate it then. I just saw kids that were really passionate into this thing, and I wanted to be, you know, uh, connected more socially deep with these and this is how we connected it was like this bluetooth frequency that we just synced with one another um and then as an artist you know i had artistic skills i can illustrate i was you know i'd sit and obsessively obsessively draw images from comic books and uh so you know i come uh, upon this book that's called subway art um, by henry chiffant and martha cooper Henry Chalfont and Martha Cooper, photographers, sort of photojournalists, photo anthropologists of early graffiti. And then suddenly my art, I was like, oh, that's my gateway, right? Because I could draw. So if I could draw, I should draw in that aesthetic language, right? This sort of that, that language. So I was drawn to graffiti. And that's how I came to it. Awesome. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. That's uh. Yeah description of kind of the journey and I guess the path of finding your own niche within that culture. And yeah. so I hearing that. Um, yeah. So I guess next I would kind of love to hear about how that transitioned into Echo Unlimited uh, a sure. little bit. So with Echo Unlimited, you kind of entered this paradigm shift in hip hop where well, you said in past interviews, commercialization wasn't yet in vogue for hip hop and right. it went from being associated with selling out to where it is now kind of the ability to create real wealth for underrepresented communities. And now it's like a really appreciated mechanic of hip hop. Yeah. Yeah. So do you find that Echo Unlimited was critical to making people comfortable with commercializing streetwear and hip hop as an art form? And if so, like, how did you go about creating this culture without kind of getting all this backlash and being overridden by it? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting about counterculture movements, um, regardless of what they are. Um, and regardless of what genre, let's if we just look through the lens of music, right? Or if we look through the lens of, um, let's say, skating or punk um, or, or any sort of these vectors within fashion, um, even crypto today, counterculture movements have these sort of early um, disciples that uh, can be very ideological about the foundational insight that 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 the genesis story um and was interesting to me growing up in a community like lakewood that was so uh uh had so much diversity and sort of this spectrum of i would say middle class to maybe upper middle class to impoverished okay um and really poor and below the poverty line um you know i um i knew a hip hop that was this kind of make something from nothing, right? The, the sort of school of hip hop and the culture that I was draw was connected to had this sort of underlying entrepreneurial story way weaved into it. And then as it was becoming more and more, um, uh, tribal, there were new sort of camps of hip hop and it was slowly growing. Um, 
first one of the first sort of foundational elements coming off of it, uh, besides obviously DJing and graffiti and right, was streetwear. It was one of the first sort of little offshoots you started you started to see, and like in a lot of things within fashion, you know, they we declare there's no rules, right? That the part of it, the the part of uh, the uh, um, what makes these things sort of you know cultural uh, is um, this this sort of break in the the rule structure. Hey. But the irony is that there's a lot of rules. Okay, and fashion could be very um, uh, clubby and very tribal, right? So, where you distributed, for instance, in streetwear, where you retailed your goods, where you sold your products to, there was sort of like the adjacencies meant something. So, I was this kid from Lakewood that grew up sort of middle class. Um, and I had aspirations to want to do, do better. And I had friends that were broke and, you know, I connected to this. I, I very much connected to the entrepreneurial thing coming up in, in high school, like airbrushing T-shirts and stuff and making money and transacting. So I didn't see any shame in that. But suddenly when I got into manufacturing the clothes, there was this kind of camp that was a little bit more on that fashion ideal, uh, ideological spectrum. And there was this tension between these camps, between what's real, what's not real, right? And I was a kid that was like growing up and like, you know, wanted a, I heard Slick Rick talk about Polo Cologne. I went out, I got Polo Cologne at Macy's, right? I wanted Timberland boots. I would go to Dr. J's in Newark, right? Or, or wherever there was a Dr. J's retail storefront, which was like a famous, you know, multi-branched big retailer in the, here in, the, in, in New York and New Jersey. Um, and there were, you know, there was this other camp that was like, you know, Patricia Fields, which was like the small downtown Soho, LES, Lower East Side, more hipster skate underground current. Uh, and I wanted to, I saw Timberland. I wanted Timberland on my feet. I aspired to make my own, want to make my own Timberlands. I aspired to be polo. Or, or, you know, Levi's, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to just be as constrained as, uh, as these sort of counterculture brands that were very contented being with these, these very, this sort of almost um, uh, uh, puritanical constraints, right, where it was like, that's what defines it, like, you're only t-shirts, we only make t-shirts and skateboards, what do you mean you're making, like, can't make sneakers you can't can outerwear like no no we only make coaches jackets we only make varsity like no 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 no. that's the aesthetic boundaries and i just i don't know maybe it was my my naiveness or maybe my practicalness i don't know that that i that it made me aspire to want to express the brand beyond just sort of the constraints of my the sort of uh the 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 sort of group think within that early discipleship, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted to stretch those boundaries, and um, I just didn't maybe know any better. I maybe didn't, you know, and and I found it quite ironic that a lot of the kids and the people that were kind of making these constraints were like, you know, actually very privileged kids in many cases. It was this interesting mix of kids like from real you know, can't grew up, you know, uh, in the boroughs of New York, you know, first generation, no money. And then kids with like trust funds that were like nurturing this early streetwear culture. And there was this sort of big West coast because Stussy was the first really big streetwear brand, which came out of surf. So I, I found that I had dissonance with that as an East coaster. I was like, I don't understand how like they, these guys from the West Coast, you know, uh, that are doing amazing stuff, by the way, are setting the rules or parameters for what us, you know, like a kid from Jersey is supposed to do or not do. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, you just brought up how 
kind of the streetwear brands and brands that were similar in, I guess, market as you um, had this trouble finding a balance between being able to scale and actually preserving their artistic vision. And, and I think like that's something you talk about in a lot of interviews. And I, I would really love to hear how you find this balance between staying commercially responsible while staying true to cre- your creative vision, especially at scale when, as your company gets bigger. I would love to hear how um, like you avoid kind of the pressures of financial engineering and optimizing costs and maintain this culture throughout your company and yeah, yeah just stay artistic. Yeah. I think that that's um, that is the art art of life, isn't it? Yeah. Is balance, right? Isn't it? I mean, balance is everything. Yeah. It is sort of the essence of the mystery of time, right? Um, It's like St. Augustine said, uh, you know, if I think and reflect on what time means, I understand it. But if one of my friends asks me what it means, it becomes, to explain it, it becomes a complete mystery. The one thing that's a fact of time is that it moves. It moves forward. (laughs) So business models often don't. Business models are designed to be build this mousetrap or this this sort of format or structural mind mental model of how to operate. And then you keep refining it. And there's beauty in the refinement. There's there's craft and skill that comes out of that. But I've found that in the creative business, in the the commercial creative arts, you have to conscientiously keep let's just arbitrary number, 20, 30% space here and here and here for the discovery what time's going to bring. Okay. Because time, like, time is cha- going to change everything. And if you're truly going to be in the business of culture, what is culture? Culture is our shared habits. It's our shared beliefs. I'm paraphrasing many people that have said that before. Some version of that is a reflection of um, the zeitgeist, the the ghost of time, our shared habits, our shared beliefs. Our habits and our beliefs evolve. They they change. They there's an there's there's an there's a plasticity to that that you have to you have to make space for. So there's the tension between building a business model, refining it, honing it, mm-hmm. learning how to import something, having inventory systems, planning ahead a year in advance, knowing that you've got all these logistical constraints that, that constrain time, that, force, that are forcing mechanisms. I want that fabric on that jacket now of, or a year from now. Well, it takes me six months to get it. So I, gotta put, so I should plan ahead to know that I'm going to need that fabric. Okay, so that's a that's a design constraint. It's a forcing mechanism. But how do you preserve and keep balance? That's a, and it's a long-winded philosophical way to, to answer that question because there is this temptation as you're trying to balance of like fiduciary responsibility, paying the bills, growth, investing, right? Putting away some money for like a rainy day with your creative aspirations, your creative impulses to want to express something new, right? You have to preserve an intentionality and space for both of these things. And it's sort of like, if it's a business model, if it's parenting, if it's exercise, if it's your relationship with anything, the common theme. And I, and I think that, uh, so you have to, you, you know, you have to be present. Mm-hmm. You have to be present and you have to, you know, because the, the machinery of a business, if, the, if you don't keep that alchemy right within a team, then legal could dominate the, the narrative or finance could dominate the net or the modeling or manufacturing in, in the case of, of the fashion business or media um you know, uh, social and right. sort of just the engagement metric as a as a measure of success. There's a lot of 
KPIs that are going to drive, but you got to, you got to have people hold space for the unknown. And if you don't do that and you don't, if you don't bring, if you don't keep that vision and that energy and that some space for the ghost time to be present amongst you and your planning, you don't, you don't evolve. You don't meet, you, you lose your relevance. And I've, and I could tell you, there have been years in my history. I look back at that map of history. Some years we were more financially modeled and there were good things that happened, but then you didn't reinvest that energy, hold it, then bad things happened. Then there was decay. So it was this constant sort of ballet between this on this, the sharp edge um, uh, to, to manage. So that's actually really interesting to hear about because I think not a lot of people understand uh, the balance that comes with being a creative entrepreneur and how in some ways, while it's like all entrepreneurs kind of share the same elements of journey, it really is a fundamentally unique uh, way to build a business. And you really have to preserve your authenticity and your identity. And you talk a lot about that in Unlabel, your book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really interesting. And I, and I love to hear that. And I would also love to hear just about like kind of the fundamental pro- parts of your uh, business strategy. So you said once that your strategy is just launch a product and hope that it gets into the correct vicinity. And even if it's 70% of where it needs to be, you guys are confident that you can overcome that Delta because you're prepared right. to understand your team's capability. Uh, as a young entrepreneur, I guess this is kind of selfish in a question, but no, please. I love selfish. How and when do you know that the skills that you have the skills to be prepared to adjust to the nuances of launching a product and how do you develop that competency and confidence, really? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, there's a there's it's kind of a compound question there because the setup was um, uh, how do you know you've got the skills to adjust? Um, I think through just doing it. I mean, it's a it's a very like cliche answer. But uh, um, there is a lot of hand wringing and over intellectualizing and making sort of perfect the enemy of good. All these sort of, you know, proverbs or little sort of, you know, bumper stickers that you could uh, you could throw up from name, whatever entrepreneurial book one on one that's been said before, probably better than I'm saying it now. Um, But uh, I think you you have to just kind of you have to just submit and, and put minimally viable expressions up. And I could tell you that that is the, the number one common attribute amongst people that I, even adults that are, you know, very intellectual with fancy degrees and fancy resumes. Um, people are afraid. There's a, there's a, you know, you, there's a fear to sort of, of, there's a shame still associated uh, um, with, uh, you know, swinging and missing. And I think you have to be willing to kind of just kind of chop at it instead of just trying to think that there's only one way to do it. Cause then you, you could just have this failure to launch. And I've seen a lot of people, very talented people, have good ideas and never ship You never ship the, the idea exists in uh, some echo chamber um, of uh, and uh, or, or, you know, it never gets realized or brought to market or tested. And then there's this animosity because someone else beat them to, they took my idea. No, you were just slow. Right. Or you were afraid to iterate. So I think, uh, you know, um, there is in the reality of flow, right? I think it's in nature. The story, the the story, the answer to this exists in nature. The fractals of flow, how they show up in the roots of a tree, in in our lungs, in our veins, you see, there's this little, you know, it's breaks. So it's just trying. The branches are just like a, an effort to try to try and like kind of make its way. 
you have to allow yourself to get into that state. And there's some businesses, let's say like, you know, pharmacy or trying to invent, you know, the, uh, the vaccine for COVID that you don't get to sort of just iterate, you know, <laughs> there's some things that are life and death that, you know, don't, uh, uh, have as much permission for, uh, trial and error, but most, most things do. Um, and, uh, and even in those spaces, uh, um, you know, the, you have to dare to innovate and you, you, you know, I think we've, there is evidence that, um, you know, even with the, the state of COVID, um, there's something kind of fascinating looking back at the system, uh, sort of knowing that we were under pressure and there was this foil, right, of the threat of, uh, for our civilization, our health, that suddenly lifted certain compliance standards to, to allow for the innovation to happen. It's kind of interesting, like, whoa, you know, in like kind of unplugging from the matrix for a minute and like thinking about what other areas in our world. I'm not sitting, I'm not going to be here to, um, you know, be, uh, get into any ideological, political, Regulate. you know, or, or go down a rabbit hole on that. But there, there is something about the systems within our bureaucracies, be them corporations, government, right? That don't really embrace flow and iteration. Absolutely. So I think that's the, uh, uh, you know, but sometimes that the permission to do it is a mental model. Like we, we think we need permission, but we don't. Or we're afraid to step out and sort of dance naked, you know, metaphorically and worry about the judgment, you know, dancing in public foolishly, like, oh, don't let them see you do that. You're going to look like a fool. No, maybe you should. Yeah. You know? So actually, that's, that is a great lead into this question, because I really would love to hear about kind of overcoming those psychological barriers to iterating and being willing to fail and being willing to learn from what happens. Um, so you often, so this is kind of linked into, you often discuss the importance of realizing that perception isn't reality and the need to overcome this common narrative around the feeling that we must prioritize peer reviewing and the judgment of others in our sphere. How do you learn as a young person in an era of like near universal access of information to overcome this innate element of the human condition and the ego? that makes us want to be respected and appreciated by the people around us, even if they have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. Well, you know, it's so great about this. We, we think that, okay, so no doubt this new, not so new anymore, but this error of social media and this sort of error of modernity and our relationship with sort of self-broadcast and new infrastructure around commu interpersonal communication with the internet, social media. Oh, this is a game changer. Really, our ego and the human ego ain't nothing new under the sun. You could pick up some old Marcus Aurelius and, you know, uh, some old stoicism. And we've been talking about this shit for a mighty long time, right? We humans have a funny tendency of dealing with this issue of our ego and our id um, uh, and our rational self and our wise mind and our uh, emotional self. And our need for consensus building. And, and it's, just, it's balance, isn't it? It comes back to the question before. This somehow comes back to that, you know, forever truthful, one of the most perfect expressions, graphical expressions of life, the yin-yang, right? Like, it, it, it all comes back to that, you know? And I think, um, I think, I, I think it's for sure today, there is a certain toxicity of this, this dynamic of living in this world. And I think for you guys, I feel, especially for you and your peers, for my son and my, my daughters that have had to go through uh, certain growth phases of building your prefrontal cortex as you're going through high school and college and, you know, until that thing's forming, right? And you're on these freaking Zoom you know, like you, you have no peripheral vision, like two years, you lived life without peripheral vision, <laughs> right? Like, seriously, think about it. It's wild. 
So for sure, this generation has some unique challenges, but these human challenges of peer review, peer consensus, the need of affirmation of the gatekeeper, these are universal thousands of multi-thousand-year-old challenges. And I think people need to keep perspective, right? And stay in their, um, use the Google for something else, right? Look up other people have gone through what you're going through. There are a lot of them. them. Many of them. And there's something kind of beautiful about knowing that we're not alone in that, right? And how liberating that could be. We lose our sense of proportion because we're not, pinching in or zooming out, right? We're from a, from a historical understanding. So we lose, we're in our ego and we're trapped by that. And, you know, our friend, our colleague, our, the kid we don't really like so much in class gives you that side eye, that sort of snarky, passive aggressive dismissive. And there might even be merit in some of the things he's saying or she's saying, but that doesn't define everything about your effort. It doesn't mean it's done. And I think people need to know that, that this essence of balance, this sort of the, 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 just stand in front of the ocean and watch the waves go up and down. That's the frequency you're on for, for life. It's built in the code of everything around us. All the answers are around us. So when we're shocked, like, oh my God, I didn't get my way. Oh, I feel terrible. I'm down. No. You're just riding the wave and the wave is down. Wave's going to go up. You're going to keep it down? Are you going to wallow in that? Like, this, is the, this is the thing that, um, that I, I, I'd like to see our culture, our educational system, uh, um, teach our young people better, is our relationship with our brain, the, 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 the physics, the biophysics, biochemistry of our brain the architecture and our relationship with it at a much younger age, because I think it would, it help sort of demystify all this emotional shit we go through. Yeah. Even at 49, like I'm like, I can go through it. You're never not done going through it. Yeah. So I think that's actually great advice, uh, especially like you, you spoke a little bit about how, even though we have all these opportunities to be compared in our generation, we just have so much more opportunity to get perspective and hear from people that have been through it. And I think that's something that's really valuable to take away because yeah, like it can be hard and you can, there's lots of people to learn from. And when you stand in front of the Google, right. Or in front of the internet, I call it the, the, the Google when I, I, I don't mean that as pejorative, but that's a catch all for like pretty much all of the internet. It's just a mirror of your Every, it's just a mirror. Right. They're all your greatest desires, all your greatest fears. <laughs> if you want to find out about your true self, go down the right. I know you've done it. And people listening to this have done it. They've gone down that rabbit hole, man. They discover some shit that's dark. And they're like, fuck, that's dark. It's like you're looking at yourself. But you're looking at, but you're choosing to look at that part of yourself. Step out, stop, pull out. Glean perspective. And, and search for the opposite thing at that moment. And give yourself the freedom of curiosity. And you see, wow. Or, or ask, why am I looking at that? What, what provoked, what sort of idea, belief, feeling brought me to reflect on this, to convince that like this is the, the box? And you find out that others have thought, discovered a solution. There's so much information out there for you. So don't just let it be a mirror. Is that I guess the don't be careful with that. You could be deceived. It's a very deceptive tool that um, we have so much information, but we also have the information that we want to hear, yeah. that we want to see, that we allow ourselves to see, that we only that we just sort of go like this. It's all mm -hmm. we're looking at. Be mindful of that. You got to like take it off, unshackle yourself. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's good to hear that everyone like really needs to just open up and kind of learn organically and through exploration. And That's I think it. 
something that's kind of remiss in our education system. And you talk a lot about that. You're doing a lot of work now. I would actually love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. You, uh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the last um, people mostly know me for the stuff that you've asked me about um, and for my my career in, in media and, and fashion. But over the last five years or so, I came to initially um, uh, an organization uh, called XQ Institute. And I serve on the board of XQ Institute. And the way I got to XQ, XQ set up as a, as a high school redesign uh, organization. And basically we provide all sorts of open source frameworks and tools and insights to really zoom in on the fulcrum of what we think is the fulcrum of, of, of opportunity to, to really radically innovate our educational system, which is the high school years. So a lot of people that are focused on K through eight, a lot in post-secondary, right. And there's a lot of money, philanthropic institutions, publishers, industry solving for those fields. When you look at the data and you look at the performance of kids coming off of eighth grade over the last 20, 30 years, you see it's at that eighth grade cliff, man, it falls and it falls really hard, right? And you could get early tells by looking at someone's zip code and their algebra score, their, their, you know, their, their high school algebra uh, grades, where they might be headed in life. And it shouldn't be like that. Right. And the system has been designed around um, uh, uh, and it was designed very well, by the way. So this is not a diss of our history. I don't mean this in some like, ooh, you know, there were bad robber barons that were out to, um, uh, you know, keep us totally downtrodden. There's some people that believe that I don't I don't subscribe to that. The system was designed to help kind of create an, an industrial complex for education. And it was built on what was called the Carnegie unit. Andrew Carnegie, uh, the, the, you know, the steel guy, um, very wealthy Scotsman came over to the States. He was fascinated with uh, philanthropy. He was a very generous guy, really zoomed in on education and him and a, a guy named Charles, uh, um, I might be getting his name wrong. Is something Elliot? Uh, you would think, believe he was the president of uh, Harvard at the time, uh, along with what was called the Committee of Ten, which was uh, some thought leaders within the uh, the, the secondary, the post secondary arena, were getting together to say, well, how do we create some sort of standardization and formula rubric to, for assessment, right? And they gave birth to what was eventually called the Carnegie Unit, and this happened very quickly in the early 1900s, okay? And our system's built on that now, oh. right? So I came to XQ because Russell and Ali, our CEO, who's a very close friend of mine, I knew her in my past life. I say past life, my other career. When I was at Complex, I went on a crusade around corporal punishment in schools. At the time, this was in 07, 08, so probably oh seven to oh nine, I went on this kind of this crusade where uh, I was amongst a lot of philanthropic ed reformers. And at that time, uh, this is the pre-Obama years, Gates launched an initiative called um, uh, Ed in 08. He was trying to put ed reform onto, into the universe, right, into the zeitgeist. And um, he worked with a brilliant filmmaker and a, and a good friend of mine, I've been lucky to, to get to know, uh, Davis Guggenheim who made a film called Waiting for Superman. And that, that was a moment in American education reform where a lot of the dialogue was about school choice, mm -hmm. where innovation was happening outside of, or at least was part of the thesis, that great innovation was happening outside of the constraints of the current system that was gated by Carnegie's measure of time and space, but not so much that, but more, let's say, labor, procurement, curriculum procurement, the shape of the school, union contracts, things like that. So independent school operators, either private or public charters were launched. And this became this great source of innovation. And there's a debate to this date on the merits. I, I think that choice is a good thing. And I think that there's been great innovations that came out of the charter movement. But the ed reform movement kind of just was 
focused on that as the key insight. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this system is medieval in a lot of ways. We got in 17 states in the union at that time, corporal punishment, physical paddling of kids for, in, for punishment was allowed in 17 states in the union at the time. Okay. So I'm sitting here meeting with all these very brilliant warriors, ed reform warriors, and they're doing all these soaring storytelling around charter. I'm like, man, there's, you know, I wanted to go more rock and roll. And I was like, I'm going to take up this crusade. I'm going to file lawsuits on behalf of these kids that have been paddled. I'm going to get the laws changed. Mm -hmm. So I go into uh, um, the, the, the department of uh, um, the DOE. And I end up uh, at the woman who runs the Office of Civil Rights, who's now my great colleague and our CEO at XQ, Russell Natley. She was inside the Office of Civil Rights at the time um, uh, under Arnie Duncan, who was the, the, the head of the, the DOE at the time. Um, and I launched this campaign called Unlimited Justice. And I end up finding all these kids around the country, mostly focused on Texas. That was the big lever. And I sue. Texas, the state. And we end up on behalf of these kids, we win and we get the law changed uh, awesome. in, in Texas. And it precipitously changed in about four or five other states as a part of that catalytic reaction. But I, I got the bug for wanting to change the system at the, at the kind of a system design level. And I was I zoomed in in this, what I perceived as a medieval practice of, uh, of um, discipline. <laughs> But really what I was keen to disrupt was the Carnegie unit, right? So when I met Ruslan again, later on, years, fast forward years later, she's launching XQ and I, we have this great history and I'm talking to her and I'm like, Hey, you know, got to do this right. So what's the moonshot? She's like, we could just replace the Carnegie unit or, or change it or, or have the Carnegie, the, the, you know, folks at Carnegie, um, uh, other folks within the field hold space to imagine a different mental model, a different kind of rubric, a different kind of system for uh, uh, assessment. Have we just held space for that? Because we so much of are designing our infrastructure around this ice cube tray. We're on the gerbil wheel. We can't get off of it. We don't even know we're on it anymore. Yeah. It's like the point about like, you know, uh, when we were just riffing on about like uh, self-awareness, right. Of, of like iteration and, and, you know, uh, building consensus and peer, peer uh, agreement. History zoom out. It's we're on this gerbil wheel guys. Right. Like, Let's give ourselves permission and grace to debate the merit of it. And is there a better path forward? So uh, XQ really set out at the underpinning of XQ is to, to, to hopefully build infrastructure and the impetus and the catalytic, the catalytic consensus to redesign that. I'm very proud after five years being there. In fact, we just this last Sunday, okay, uh, I don't know when folks will see this, but they could look it up. The Carnegie Foundation, in partnership with XQ, announced a new consortium and a commitment, a 10-year commitment, five-year immediate uh, discovery with uh, open innovation challenges, um, uh, um, labs for assessment, um, consortium building, advocacy work, culture work, to innovate and replace the Carnegie unit with Carnegie as our partners. Congratulations. That's amazing. So, and it's going to be a lot of work and it's going to take folks like, it's going to take everybody to see themselves in this work. So I brought my kind of culture making know-how to the education field. That was really to come the long-winded way. Mark, why did you get into a high school at, at reform? I brought all of my knowledge and insights from building the fashion brand, media, um, demand creation, understanding of the zeitgeist to this field. And I said, I, I, this is where my heart is. You know, this is where this part of my life, this chapter is where my intellectual curiosity is. And I had the very good fortune of being able to, to do that here at, uh, at XQ and then also Emerson Collective, which is the parent entity.
Awesome. So education reform is something very near and dear to my heart. So that's really great to hear. Um, I we would, have an interesting bond with that, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we right? do. Right. But when I challenged you, like you and you and my son, I was like, you guys got to create like a tutoring. That's how we first met. So, yeah. So for those of you don't know, senior year of high school uh, during COVID, I kind of brought up this idea of making a tutoring site and Dr. Echo was all over it and fully funded it and supported us throughout the whole way and was just a, a great influence on all of us. So that was Really a pleasure. I appreciate that you had that that desire to do it, Rohan, and that you just leaned in. And um, I I needed that. I needed to see that hope, and I and I and to see the power of student voice. And look, you know, it was it was like a vocation. You you had this calling. We did it, and uh, but there's something about the role of peer to peer learning and assessment as a as a new model. That's one of the examples that that instance, if you could like take that impulse that we had because of the pressure of COVID and suddenly we're, you know, we're like this on Zoom, you know, and we're not able to be with one another to try to create some sort of socialization. Um, Imagine if that was built into the system in a more serious and conscientious way. You could probably build that in as early as, you know, middle school, seventh, eighth grade. I think you could probably start having some function like that yeah. you know um and teaching sort of uh um uh, uh emotional intelligence right mm-hmm. and and some of the things that they teach in like dialectical behavioral therapy about being able to take critique from one another could be taught at the time when you're helping others learn mm-hmm. and kids could be with good intentions teaching someone else math and then maybe being mo- emotionally insensitive and learning about that insensitivity and being like, oh, I could have used my words better. There's a lot of opportunity there. All this multi-vector learning. Um, so I appreciate that you put yourself out there like that and uh, maybe a rabbit hole for our, the audience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I took from it in a lot of ways is that like this was 2020 right in the midst of the beginning of COVID and everything was virtual learning in a way that almost nobody, literally nobody had ever seen before. Yeah, I think it really just showed me that we were really lucky to have 50 tutors sign up and however many people getting free tutoring sessions. And I I think like there's lots of kids who are shifting to something they've never seen before. That's right. To learn. And so, yeah, yeah, that's probably the biggest thing I took from it. And I really appreciate you giving us that perspective and giving the opportunity for these kids to not have to go through that. So it meant a lot. Thank you. Um, Yeah. And I think like, you, when you were talking about getting rid of corporal punishment through lawsuit, that's something I've never heard before. And I think that's kind of like a culture forming technique that not many people have the understanding experience to do, definitely. And so I kind of love to hear about your journey in forming culture, especially at Complex and, and through Echo and, and just like the skills you learned and how you learned that people emotionally adapt and are impacted by kind of specific things you do. I don't know how much reflection I really give to what I do um, or what I've done, uh, to be honest. Um, Maybe my my light bulb's a little dim in that area. I could talk with a lot of emphasis and maybe it could come off at times a little um, cocky or know-it-all because I talk with my hands a lot and I emphasize, but I really don't know that I think in that that way. I look at it like... um, this is just a skill and a, and a calling I've had in life and a curiosity. And I just kind of just nurse it. And it, 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 uh, you know, I built a, I built on that. Um, I do think that, uh, I am in a lot of ways, like some sort of weird, I wonder if I didn't do this, like uh, I could have been like social anthropologist or something. Like I, I, I think like I, I've, become sort of the the inverse and on the margins of my practice and professional practice i've found certain themes that have showed up uh that are around psychology brain science um cultural habits uh um civics that i didn't know i had the curiosity for that that actually and that i acted you know if i could have known that 
those would have been places to invest time to learn. It would have given me a head start on a lot of shit, right? But you come to it like by through failure and trial and, er- and error. Um, uh, I I think, and I also think that you do things in providence. I do think that you do things as a part of a greater energy. Mm-hmm. Right. So my role is I'm just a bit actor amongst other players. So I don't see, I don't see myself. I, I see myself like in the stadium making the wave with others. I'm mm-hmm. not, it's like it's not like I'm not there by myself, right? And I do think that I was again comes all the way back to your first question. And I and I brought up like time and place. You know, Lakewood, New Jersey, the year I was born. on that street in that scenario in that public school system shaped me right and then there's this dimension which is another vector that is massive game changer for me i'm a twin i'm a twin sister so i had a uh maternal care because of a twin sister who's all five minutes older than me that was nurturing in a way that most boys don't get. And that shaped me and it created a certain level of, um, you know, for me, that was my sort of like uh, my socio-emotional learning because I I had the proximity of my sister. I had to be empathetic to see, I saw where I could trigger her or get her angry or her friends angry. And I, I learned the boundaries a lot faster then let's say if I didn't have yeah. a sister who's five minutes older than me, you know, that's, so. Oh yeah. That's super interesting. I think people underestimate kind of the power of sibling influence and having someone in your life that is a mentor in a way that it doesn't typically mean mentor, but you just right. kind of like you can learn from anyone. And so I, that's actually something interesting that you've talked about is mentorship and mm-hmm. like, how you don't know if traditional mentorship where you're meeting someone for coffee every couple of weeks, and that's not really what interested you and not what benefited you. And what did is finding these organic relationships and meeting people and asking questions of kind of anyone who listened. And I, I'd love to hear your take on that and like how you can learn from people of any age, uh, any experience, because I think like a lot of people fall into this traditional rut of looking for someone older and more experienced than them and just meeting them for coffee. And so it's almost, it's almost like a resume thing, right? It becomes this sort of mechanical caricature of the pageantry of the relationship between the mentor and the mentee. And there's beautiful things that come from that. I don't want to dismiss it, but that's not the only format. Right. And you know, the pageantry need not apply. Right. And and I think um, I, I say, don't go to school, let school come to you. Right. Mm-hmm. This sort of lifelong learning, this sort of obsession with of uh, obsessively curious, open to be wrong, um, wanting to learn. Um, I mean, what a better time to live than right now. I mean, I don't, can't think of a better time than right in these moments for, for young people because of just the access to information and people playing remote mentor, you know, I could just go down a rabbit hole on YouTube and pretty much find out anything I want, you know, pretty much not all good. (laughs) No. Um, and not all, not all bad though. Uh, so I think, um, you know, uh, you know, people, young people go their first job in high school. They don't necessarily think that they're, that, that they're going to come in contact with that, potential mentor type role. Um, They don't think they're going to get it at church. There's a bias or within their faith institution. They don't think they're going to necessarily be able to have that sort of dynamism within their school, right? Depending on what school you go to, you know, a lot of people don't go to schools with as rich of a guidance department as a, you know, the school like you went to or my son went to, right? Or where you go right now, Princeton. I think, uh, so the point is, is it could be in places that you don't suspect. I say like finding your Yoda 
I mean, even yeah. Yoda as a character, right? Like, just think of that. Like, he's awesome. He's my favorite character from Star Wars, right? Like, Yoda is everything. But, but as a figure is the metaphor for this point. He's this old shriveled up looking like <laughs> he's the last person you think is going to be a badass and teach you some shit. You know, but he does. And I think you have to kind of hold space for the insights that could be gleaned and not and forever be like a force field around you. This sort of force field or this Bluetooth frequency that allows yourself to sink. You can't just be like, okay, now I'm in I'm in mentee mode. I'm in mentor mode and teach. I'm ready to learn. You have to be there. There's got to be a porousness and the frequency has to be you get the signal and you could grab something and actually learn, learn from it. Right. And I think that that, um, I think it's, uh, it is like oxygen in life. The minute you're done, you think you've learned it all. You've really, you're done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think that's a a really great point because you can, and like in this era, you can have your Google calendar with every event set and you can be like, this is my time for mentoring. I think people forget that sometimes you just need to be a sponge and, and go out into the world and learn from everything that's around you. And so I really appreciate hearing that. And uh, when you get that spark of curiosity and you think it's like bad social manner to say, hey, what it advocate for your interest. Don't be embarrassed. It comes back to like dance in public. Be willing to be embarrassed. Don't be a, don't be apprehensive. Find out what's the worst you're going to, with the, they're not going to share it with you. You get a one little pearl, that little pearl you get could be three hours on Google that give you information insight, just knowing how it's called. Like, what is that thing called that you're doing right there? I've seen that done before. What is the technical name for it? Oh, I didn't know that. There's no one in my peer group that could have told me that. I wanted to know. I found out that moment. It's there. The knowledge is is porous. So I'd actually love to hear a little bit about that um, because I I don't know what you your perspective is, but sometimes I feel like the most valuable information in the world is never going to be on Google and isn't on Google. Uh, and it's you can only get it from asking questions from people older than you, smarter than you, more experienced than you, and everyone else. And I'd love to hear what you think about that and where you think like the most valuable learning comes from. Well, it is contextual, isn't it? Like great learning has a context, right? There's a time in your life. There's a place, there's a meaning, there's a personal motivation or impetus that's incentivizing the learning for you chemically at a chemical level that's allowing you to be open and porous. And that's not just on demand. It might actually be on Google, but like that modality isn't the right modality for where you're at biochemically at that time. Right. So I think um, I, I believe that learning is a, is one of the meanings of life. Right. I think it's one of our, the reasons we're here. Right. It's one of our, our, and, and I think the learning and then the sharing of that knowledge. I think it is, is a part of that Bluetooth frequency of give, of giving, right? Yeah. It's a part of giving and receiving and giving meaning to, or, right? So um, I, I think, uh, you know, being in this sort of state of um, uh, willingness um, and curiosity, I think is, is a key is a key thing and logic and the pursuit of, of, of logic and then e-logic and, and balance all of these things. I mean, it's a very mushy stuff that we're riffing on, but, um, or could be perceived as very mushy stuff. Um, but is actually consequential. And, you know, when you're struggling with a learning experience or you have a challenge, you have a, a test or something you're dealing with at school, or there's a topic or you're, you got to look at the modality, your relationship with it, your the physical orientation to it, how you're coming to it on a physical level. Yeah. Where are you at chemically? What, what can you do to sort of reorient and 
And sometimes to acknowledge it, sometimes the teacher isn't good. And it's kind of a shame, you know, um, but it, you have, it doesn't mean you don't have the capacity. If you're, if you feel like this punitive relationship where it's like, well, you know, by the looks of this, I got, I didn't achieve. Yeah. I'm not being measured. I'm not being measured well. So I must not be smart enough or I didn't learn it. Or maybe you just didn't learn it yet. Exactly. And I, yeah, I think that's something really valuable because uh, like you've talked about this before and, and I think throughout people's education journeys, they kind of get labeled like, oh, you're a math kid or, oh, you're bad at math. And then they never right. do math again. And I think that's honestly a travesty. And I think yeah. there's really no way to develop when you're getting shot in the foot at the start. And so um, I it think- comes back to the whole brain science thing, right? The corpus callosum is the thin, it's the, the, the barrier, the layer, right in the center of your brain that separates right and left. Right. And coming into relationship with that, not just sort of by a blunt way, understanding all the rights for emotion on the left for rational left, but just understanding like there's a great book um, uh, that was uh, uh, who there's a couple of books that I think are really worth sharing with the audience that around brain science. People are curious and learning. Right. There's um, I think it's called da, the Da Vinci's brain. I want to look that up really quick. I, or you, let me see. I don't want to go down. I don't want to take us off course here. But Da Vinci's brain. Um, it's about Leonardo Da Vinci's brain, um, and it's sort of this forensic history of his, the the uh, an anal- sort of a forensic psychological analysis of of Leonardo Da Vinci, and and like tied into with brain science. Um, and I believe that that was. Uh, Written by uh, Leonard Schlein, who yeah. also wrote The Alphabet uh, Versus the Goddess, um, which is another fascinating book. But Leonard Schlein actually died of brain cancer, yeah. started writing this book. He died before it finished. His daughter, who's gone on to be a successful author as well, finished it for him. So that just the, this sort of like yeah. climbing Mount Kilimanjaro epic nature of like how the story was born built and then finished and this relationship of the author to her father who dies of brain cancer so the 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 brain as a character or as an environment for the story is great and there's another book that i forget the author's name it's called first rate madness first rate madness that is another great book about um, all these historical figures and they're again, it's another sort of forensic analysis uh, of the 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 uh, psychiatric analysis um, and trying to analyze the, the these people's sort of emotional composition and how those a- acted as interesting character traits for those those leaders at their at their time right so it covers gandhi jfk mlk it covers bad guys it covers hitler right it covers you know tony blair it covers a whole range of it. one thing though in retrospect for the readers and for anyone watching no female figures in it kind of disappointing kind of disappointing only only male figures i'm like 99.9% certain in that book but nonetheless great I'm telling you, man, the the brain is like, it's magical to try to get into relationship with understanding the anatomy of it and understanding it and knowing that, oh man, that's like a common RCPU. Like we all, like I'm looking at you, you've got one, I've got one. It's like, what OS are you on? What OS am I on, right? It's, there's something kind of really rich in giving people grace to understand that, oh, this person I'm meeting, it's more than just what I'm meeting, this perception. There's like their trauma, there's their history, there's their family, there's their biochemical makeup, there's the things that they might be diseased, they might be, you know, um, uh, hypothalamic or some other thing that I can't tell. We all have some weird aberration. We all do. Even the normies. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, thank you for that. Those are seem like great book recommendations. And uh, we usually, I don't want to take too much of your time. So we usually end this podcast by, in the spirit of the podcast, asking what's the punchline. And like, if you could leave with giving the audience one bit of advice or piece of knowledge, what would it be? Oh my goodness. Um, man, just uh, never stop learning. Yeah. Never stop being curious. You know, be restlessly and relentlessly curious in, and never think you know it all because you don't. There's so much information out there to get, so much more to learn. And just come into deep relationship with that and, and share. Share. Don't be greedy with it. It's, it's such it was, the, the power of, of sharing that is a is a is is a very rich um thing don't overshare know your audience (laughs) so hopefully i didn't overshare for people thank you so much that was an absolute pleasure it's been a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you today and i i just want to thank you so much for this conversation my pleasure rohan um yeah and so for the audience if you want to gain more insight access to insights from dr mark echo please read his book label selling you without selling out and yeah i can't express how grateful i am to have had the opportunity to talk today and it was a great conversation i definitely learned a lot myself so thank thank you my friend thank you ron You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.